In, uh, in preparing for this week, in preparing this message uh, during the week, uh, one question that kept coming up uh, as I was looking through, through this chapter and, and through my notes was, was, do I think that judgment is a good thing? Do I think that judgment is a good thing? I wonder what you might say to that, to that question. Do you think that judgment, that God's judgment is a good thing? thing. Now the prophet Joel, as you read through the the book of Joel, he mentions God's judgment uh, quite a lot uh, and it is a very hard concept to wrap our heads around. It is a a hard doctrine to accept because as you speak to people, many people will ask, well how can a loving God really judge people? How can he send people to hell? That doesn't sound very loving. And yet Perhaps in response to people, we, we might say to them, well, yes, I can appreciate it. it might be challenging. It is a challenging topic. But on the other hand, what do we do with the evil that we see in the world? What do we do about that? And by what standard, by what moral standard do we, uh, do we look at that? Do we judge that? Uh, do we judge it uh, by a standard that we have in our head? Do we judge it by the culture that we see around us? Maybe by the friends and family that we keep or maybe even by the mood that we're in? What is the standard that we judge it by? Is there, in fact, an objective standard, a standard that doesn't change because actually God has set that standard. He decides what is right and wrong, what is good and what is evil. Because when we're really pushed on this topic, we have to have a good answer. We have to have a good answer as to, to, to judgment. Is it a good thing? Do we believe it to be a good thing? As we wrestle through this question this evening, it would be really helpful if you continue to follow along just in Joel 3 there. As we look at it and, and ask ourselves the question, well, there, there is a day of judgment, but, but what is the purpose of that? And the first thing is that we see the reason for it. We see the reason for it in the first few verses. When we think about uh, judgment, perhaps one of the strongest arguments for it is when we look at the world around us and we see evil. Uh, And a deep desire that we have within us to see justice. Justice being done. And this is really what the Lord promises the people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem or, or Zion, which carries the same name. The Lord says that one day he will make all things right. As, we're, as you read through the, the book of Joel, uh, the people had experienced God's judgment because they turned their backs on him. But in God's kindness, uh, they turned to the Lord again and he blessed them, restoring the years that the locusts took. He brought abundant blessing to them initially in the harvest, but ultimately fulfilled through uh, Joel's prophecy in uh, chapter 2 about Pentecost, when the Lord Jesus would ascend into heaven and give his spirit to all people, that he would pour out his spirit on everyone. As Pentecost is really a sign of the last days, the days in which we now live, and the days between Jesus' first coming and ultimately Jesus' second coming. The day when the Lord Jesus will come, not to save, but to judge and to make all things new. That is what we look forward to. As, as we see in the book of Joel, judgment begins really with the house of God. The Lord turns to, to God's people firstly. 
And now in chapter 3, the Lord turns to the nations, to those who have turned away from him. As he says in verse 2, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, meaning the Lord judges. As the Lord, in a sense, will place on trial all the nations in his sovereignty and power, he will judge them. And we have to look at you know, what, on what charge? What, why are they being charged? Why will the Lord judge them? And it says in verse 2 and 3, it tells us why he's done that. Why he will judge them. Because they've scattered God's people to the nations. They've, they have divided up the land, which is a gift to God's people, a gift of grace. And they sold God's people into slavery. They trade boys for prostitutes and girls for wine. They dehumanized the people uh, by trading them like animals and violated the most vulnerable people of all, children. And so God's anger burns against them. It burns because of their evil, because of their wickedness. And sadly, when we think of this, we don't have to look terribly far to see this still being lived out today. As you look at some of the statistics, the latest global estimates in modern slavery in 2022, there are 49.6 million people living in modern slavery in forced labour and forced marriage. Roughly a quarter of all victims of modern slavery are children. 25% are children. Because it really is often the most vulnerable that suffer. We know that because many women and children are being trafficked like animals, even in local areas, even in places like Aylesbury, even in Tame, in Oxford. These things are happening here in the UK, and it should make us righteously angry. Because as you see there in the, in the passage, powerful people are preying on the vulnerable, and they're doing so for pleasure. And that is what we see as they trade boys for prostitutes and girls for wine. Is this not pure wickedness? Sheer evil? We don't have to turn on the, the TV to see it. We already know it. We experience it in talking to people. We know that things are not as they should be. And it must make the Lord angry. Absolutely, it must make the Lord angry. He is angry with all those who would abuse people, men, women, children, the most vulnerable in our society. He might even, he's also angry at those who are persecuted. You think of Christians persecuted for their faith throughout the world, thrown into jail, tortured, or even sold into arranged marriages as well. The Lord hates all this wickedness. He hates it. And it invokes his anger. But as we see in, in Romans 1, that the anger of God or the wrath of God is not just a, a thing which will come on the last day, but it is being expressed in these days. As people, they suppress the truth about God, they suppress what they know to be good and true and right, and they suppress that. And the Lord, in his goodness, hands them over to their desires. As judgment falls on people because they actually pursue the desires that they want to pursue. The Lord hands them over to their desires. I remember 
in one of the rugby teams I was part of, uh, some of the guys in the changing room having a conversation about what is it, what, what does it count to be unfaithful? What is unfaithfulness exactly? It was, a, it was a strange conversation because it was, you could see the guys measuring up the morality of what is right and what is wrong. Is it is a conversation with someone wrong? Is it a kiss? Is it something more than that? As they looked around the changing room and said, well, many others do it, so it can't be that bad. Surely it must be okay. And, and generally that's the, the thought that many people have, that People say, well, well, God hasn't judged me. I don't see a fireball coming from the sky. He's not going to strike me down dead. But the very point is that the Lord hands people over to their sinful desires. And that is the judgment of God. As God says to people, no, not my will be done, but yours be done. If you want that, do it. He hands them over to their desires. Because they reject the Lord. They reject him as being dependent on him. And they certainly reject him as being accountable to him. And that's what we see here really in the nations. The surrounding nations. They, they take the Lord's silver and gold. And they sold God's people into slavery. And therefore he says halfway through verse 7. I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. In this, ultimately, we see that it is the Lord who will judge. It's the Lord who will judge and not us. As Paul says in Romans, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. Because as we witness evil in all its various ways in the world, whether that be the small things that in our lives might be quite big, like bullies at school, maybe bullies in the workplace, abandonment in, in a marriage, women being assaulted, children being abused, or maybe as we look to the world and see tyrants invading nations. The world is fallen, but the Lord will make it right. He will repay. The Lord is the judge. As Joel says in verse 8, the Lord has spoken. Because judgment, even to these nations, did eventually come to Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia. And justice will be done. It might not be done today, but it will be done to all those who do wrong. And so we must and should act to do justice. Where we see injustice in our lives and in our, in our communities, we should act for that. But it is ultimately God who will who will give the ultimate justice. We don't need to seek retribution or vengeance, but it is the Lord who will judge because he has appointed a final day of judgment. As we see the reason for judgment, and secondly, because there is a day of judgment, we must tell everyone about it. Tell everyone about it. As you look there from verse 9, Joel says this. He says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. In a reversal of, of the words of Isaiah, uh, Joel turns to all the nations and says, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. As you see this, this is actually an ironic way of saying, Yeah, bring your best, bring your warriors, bring your soldiers. It says, Let the weakling say, I am strong. 
As the Lord is, he is calling those who think themselves strong and says, yes, come, come to me. But you won't fight against me. In fact, you'll never win against me. Because it is the Lord who judges. That is the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means the Lord judges. He's calling them to a fight that he knows they'll never be able to win. Because this valley is really a picture of the final day of judgment. As you see there in verse 14, which says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And some might point to that verse and say, well... There is, uh, there's a need to make a decision for Christ, which is absolutely true. There is a need to decide for Christ. But actually, that's not the point of this verse. As the decision is not about us making a decision about God, but about God making a decision about us. The final day when he brings all people before him is to pronounce a judgment on everyone. As verse 13 is really, it's a picture of the final day of Revelation 14, where the Lord Jesus will swing the sickle and harvest all his people and crush all his enemies in the winepress of his wrath, as it says in Revelation 14. Because the warning by Joel is the day of the Lord is near. You see the day of the Lord mentioned throughout Joel in different forms, through the locust plague, through the giving of the Spirit in, in chapter 2. But the day of the Lord in this instance is that final day, that dreadful day when the Lord will make a decision on everyone about how we have lived and, and where we stand before him. The hard thing is, as I say, in preparing all this is, do I really believe this? Do I really believe this? That there is a final day, that there is a judgment day, and that the Lord will judge all people? Or do I just live my life giving it very little thought? If I can be honest, I'd rather not have to preach on judgment. It is a very difficult topic to approach, a very difficult topic to receive. And yet as we see the reality of judgment, it should lead us to live this day in light of that day because if judgment is real then my life and your life should change it should dramatically change I should boldly live for Christ rather than say well I just keep my faith private it's just my thing how can we do that if we live in light of that final day the challenge perhaps is if we, when we enter into schools and enter into workplaces, everyone says, take your faith and put it in the bottom drawer. Keep it there. Don't tell anyone about it. But if we live in light of the final day, then we should live a totally different life. Radically different, distinctively different. Because our lives are not our own. They don't belong to us anymore. They belong to the Lord. And therefore, we should have an urgency to tell others about the Lord Jesus, about the hope that we have in him. To tell everyone that we know that the Lord Jesus has come. He has come to save us with a free gift of grace that he offers to everyone. That everyone can come to Jesus and know eternal life through him. That is what we offer, the good news of the Lord Jesus, that there is a day of judgment, but that Jesus freely offers salvation to everyone.
It is good news for everyone, everyone in our lives locally and everyone internationally. It's good news for the people of Long Crendon, for the people of Tame, for the people of Brill, of Bicester, of Aylesbury, of uh, Cuddington, of Cheersley, of wherever we might live. It is good news for the people of Nigeria, of Egypt, Eswatini, Nepal, Bhutan, India, Senegal, Romania, Papua New Guinea. The gospel is good news for everyone. And the Lord Jesus has commissioned us to go and tell that good news to everyone. Because there is a day of decision. There is a final day of decision when it will be too late for people to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And so in light of that day, let us live today with that urgency. Let us share the gospel with urgency. That the Lord would reveal himself to people, friends, family, neighbours, people that we have yet to meet, that they would know his goodness. And that's why we want to to give towards mission as a church. We want to give towards things like Stephen Matilda Smith as, as we give towards them in their ministry. We want to give towards all of our missionaries. We think of Dave looking to to go out to PNG. We want to support that work as we look to advance the kingdom of God to all the nations. Perhaps even the Lord is putting a burden on your heart to go somewhere to share the gospel with people. People that have never heard the gospel before. That they would come to know God's goodness before that day of decision as we seek to proclaim The fact that Jesus saves. Because ultimately we've seen that there is a final day of judgment. There is a a final day of judgment and we see the reason for it. We tell everyone about it. And we behold God's glory in it. We behold God's glory in it. As you see at the start of verse uh, verse 16. uh, Joel says that the Lord will roar from Zion. As it, as it gives this apocalyptic picture of the Lord reigning over the whole earth like a lion, the lion of Judah. The first part of Joel, well, he aims the judgment, uh, God's judgment towards God's people. And then he turns towards the nations. But, but Joel, he, he reassures all those who turn to the Lord, that they, will, they will find eternal security in him. As the Lord says in verse 16, in the second part of verse 16, Uh, But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Because for all those in the Lord Jesus, for all those in Christ, Jesus is our refuge. As on the day of the Lord, which is mentioned throughout the book of Job, on one day of the Lord, the judgment fell on Christ at the cross. There was darkness, there was an earthquake, and the judgment fell on Jesus. That we might have hope that he now is our refuge. Jesus is our eternal refuge. That we would have eternal peace, that we would know his presence, and that we would know him as our saviour. As you look there in verse 17, we see something really of the glory of God. As it says, says, then you will know that I, the Lord, your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. 
Because as you think, you think of the sweep of the book of Joel, uh, God's people, well, they are initially under judgment in that locust swarm, but then they turn back and experience blessing. And then that, that, that blessing, it points to Pentecost when the ultimate blessing was poured out on all people as the, the spirit of God was poured out on the people of God forever. And that reaches its climax and its fulfillment in the new creation, which Joel speaks about in verse 17b, the second part of verse 17. He says, Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. As the Jerusalem that Joel's referring to here is the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. As he goes on to say in verse 18, In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. This is a vision of the future, of the things that are still to come. A vision of that final day when we will be welcomed into the Lord's holy presence and see the Lord Jesus face to face in all his glory. A vision which the Apostle John, he picks up in Revelation 21, and he says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the vision of the glory of God of the final day. The day when the Lord will make all things new. He will bring justice to the wicked. All the wickedness that we see every single day, the Lord will bring justice on that day. And he will welcome all of his people into his heavenly bliss, that we will be in his presence forever. And this is the day when there will be no more pain or crying or mourning or death, where the anxieties of life will pass away, where the anger that we hold on to will vanish, where the lusts that we keep will be satisfied, where the loneliness that we experience will be met because we will be with the Lord and see him in all his fullness and glory. And what a glorious, wonderful, satisfying day that will be to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. A day when the Lord Jesus says, come, come and be with me. But some might say, well, you can never really know because we're not really sure What decision God will make upon my life? Because I've done some things which I'm not sure are very good and I'm not sure how the Lord will judge me. As I thought about that the other evening, thinking about hearing different people's stories in the 12-step program, it was really interesting just to hear how people have come out of a life of addiction, a life ensnared by drugs and alcohol and other things as well. And for me, I don't know about you, if you were here, but just listening to people's stories was really powerful. Uh, listening to, to Grant, when he, when he said, 
In his recovery, he tried to skip from step one, that is admitting that he is powerless, to step four, that's taking an inventory of his life and trying to make things right with other people. And everyone said to him, yeah, you know that if you do that, you will relapse. Uh, You'll go backwards. You need to go through every single step. And initially he, he said, well, I'll be fine. I can do this. But sure enough, after having relapsed, he, he realized, no, I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. I need to go through the right process. I need to go through the right steps. Because he'd missed out steps two and three. The steps to believe and to surrender. And it made me think, when it comes to our faith in the Lord Jesus, do we perhaps try and do the same thing? Do we have a faith that says, yes, I, I admit that I, I can't really do things in my own strength. I, I, have, I have sinned. But then we jump to step four, which says, right, I'll just try and sort things out in my own strength. I'll try and work things out and make things right. But we do have to admit that we, we have a problem, yes, But that problem is sin. And actually we can't fix it ourselves. We can't make ourselves right. Because we actually have to really truly believe and surrender. That surely must be the prayers of our hearts. We have to look to the Lord Jesus that we cannot do this in our own strength. We cannot live this life in our own strength. And we cannot come before the Lord in our own strength. We come to him in Christ and so truly as we come to the Lord we don't come to him based on anything that we have done but only by what Jesus has done for us our prayer surely must be that of the apostle Paul when he talks about this in Galatians he says I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that your prayer? That Jesus gave himself for me and he loves me. That the only reason that the Lord, when he looks upon me on that final day, on judgment day, when he makes a decision upon me, is because he sees Jesus in me. Not because of anything I've done, Not because I'm better than anyone else, but only because of Jesus. I stand before the Lord in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And we say to the Lord, with my body, I honor you. With all that I am, I give to you. All that I am, I share with you. Because I am yours. I belong to you. And therefore, we can live this day in light of that day knowing that the Lord will make all things new. And what a day that will be. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness in your justice and in your love. We thank you that you are a just God, that you will punish all the wickedness that we see in this world. Help us, Lord, to live a life which reflects that which is urgent to share the good news that we have in the Lord Jesus and that we would behold his glory in light of that 
Behold that final day when he will make all things new and welcome us into his presence. Help us to live this day in light of that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.